0: ask a question while we're waiting please go for it i was very um i guess confused would be the right word to use uh when they were discussing in the text the barbarians living outside of rome because my entire life i always assumed that meant like horribly wild and untamed people but apparently that wasn't the case right um what do you mean i just always had this impression of like you know like you know uneducated you know people carrying you know knives and guns and just wanted to live life to rule people and take over countries <laughs> yeah you, yeah they were more civilized than that yeah and many, yeah, I just, I just, yeah go ahead no and they were all areas too right many of them not all of them this is great this is a this is a, a very good warm-up a very good tease for the first 20 minutes or so of the lecture so Excellent. Mm. I feel like we're still short one or two people, but I guess it's seven oh three, isn't it? Yeah. All right. Let's um, let's go ahead and get started on the uh wait, yeah, the waiting room. So, good evening, everybody. Good to See you as always. Um, the last. Last time we, um, we started with the, uh, you know, we started talking about the early Middle Ages, but it was really kind of a survey of the life of the church. And um, what we're going to do today is really, at least, the first thing we'll do today is turn to the to the kind of political situation um, that exists in the Roman Empire kind of pick up more or less where we left it, left it off, to be honest, um, which was, you know, we talked about Constantine, we talked about the aftermath of, of Constantine and, and Theodosius uh, making Christianity the official uh, religion of the Roman Empire. And then, you know, we, we kind of shifted to, um, you know, to the Christological councils and everything. So we're kind of going back to what's the political story. Um and how how does that obviously how does that affect the church is, is our concern, and so the um, the you know the key takeaway during this time is really the onset of a number of sort of invasions by uh, by sometimes the a, a group collectively known as the barbarians. Uh, I. Uh, on your outline, I called them the, the Germanic tribes, um, and you know it's 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 really a, a sort of um, mixture of different and and frankly very distinctive um, tribes that whose origins, in some cases are, are a little a little uncertain to be honest. Um, probably originated in you know northern Europe and um, into sort of, uh, you know, modern day, modern day Russia. Um, But over time, they sort of migrated uh, across the northern tier, if you will, of continental Europe outside the boundaries of the Roman Empire. And, um, you know, started to situate themselves in in various uh, points relative to, to the border, to to the border of the Roman empire. So, um, you know, one, one way I'm going to see if this this didn't display the way I wanted it to, but let me just see if I can, um, uh, hang on one sec. Show you this screen. It's, it's, I wish it was full screen, but it's not, but hopefully you'll be able to see. So. For now, I'm really, we're really only interested in the, can can people see that? Yes. Great. So we're really interested kind of in the, in the top, top two boxes, if you will. Um, I mean, and we'll, we'll get to the bottom two in in a minute, in a couple minutes, but um, you know, the upper left box, I think I can zoom in, or is that going to make it look through? That's it. Yeah, that's a little better. The upper left box is sort of, yeah, as you can see, peak peak Roman Empire, like the height of the Roman Empire. It, it en- <coughs> encompassed, <coughs> excuse me, encompassed you know tremendous um, swaths of modern day Western Europe, you know most of Western Europe, as well as importantly, you know these parts of. Um, uh, you know, Greece and into Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and then over to the Middle East with a whole uh, uh, sort of range of territories along the North African, uh, along the North African coast. North Africa, was sometimes called the the Granary of Europe. I think I'm saying that word right. G R A N A R Y. Uh, granary granary uh, which is to say there was a tremendous amount of agricultural output in northern Europe and uh, northern Africa that was sort of brought into a number of crops that were were transported across um, the Mediterranean and into, into you know modern-day Italy if you will and later Constantinople and so um, you know those territories in northern Africa were tremendously important so the um you see if i don't know if you can see my cursor but the germanic tribes are kind of situated here to the to the north and east of um to the north and east of the boundary of the empire they probably again originated uh at least at least the ostrogoths presumably and, and maybe the visigoths originated somewhere you know, like where this black box is, it says peak of Roman empire, you know, into that, you know, creeping into Russia. There's some contention. Um, again, you see on your outline that the Visigoths and Ostrogoths Visigoths, as you can see, are going to wind up in Spain and the Ostrogoths are going to wind up in, you know, essentially in, in Italy. There's some thought that the, that the name, uh, refers to sort of West and East, that the, the Visigoths were the sort of West Goths, and the Ostrogoths were the Eastern, if you will. Again, the, the exact origins of, um, of the tribes is, is not 100% certain, but that's roughly the, um, that's roughly the, the uh, best sense that we have. It's really kind of unfortunate. they they really could have like dropped a pin in their GPS coordinates or, you know, checked in on, on uh, what's one of those travel, travel review sites or something, you know, when they were sort of marauding across uh, Northern Europe, just to let us know where they came from. They didn't do that. So we're kind of left to our best estimate. Um, But the point is simply, you know, all on this sort of North uh, Eastern border, if you will, and in, What's essentially a good portion of which is modern-day Germany, right? Um, is where these tribes are are kind of um, getting situated and eventually start to make, you know, various excursions into uh, into the Roman Empire, properly speaking. You know, I think we've said um, that uh, we've said that in the You know in the era of persecution even in the third century fourth century early fourth century that one of the driving forces was the the breakdown of you know the border if you will and and the realization that you know the empire was facing some some real external pressure and um it really got to a point of of it really got to the breaking point i should say um as we enter into into the fifth century, into the 400s. Um, and so the the first the first tribe that really did significant damage, if you will, um, in this regard, is the Visigoths. And the Visigoths um, uh, again are gonna are gonna make their way uh, into the Roman Empire, but but importantly, um, I actually want to highlight some somebody else before we talk about the visigoths which gets to um i guess it was doug's point about um or no well doug raised a question that somebody else mentioned about them being Aryans. um i'm sorry i don't remember who that was um but either way um hang on let me stop sharing my screen for one second okay and open the chat box Uh, so there's a uh, a very important figure in sort of gothic i should say sometimes gothic is just used or the goths is a term used to refer to all of these tribes collectively i call them the germanic tribes um sometimes they're called the gothic tribes i think you know either is essentially fine um but just so you have a sense. So the the key sort of gothic figure is a guy named Ophila. And Ophila was um, born in the early 300s and was, um, you know, kind of lives near the border, if you will, of the the Roman Empire and these, these sort of Germanic territories. And there were sort of and again, I think this this speaks to the difference between kind of what happened in our popular conception of it. It wasn't purely, you know, an endless stream of, you know, marauding tribes, testing the, the Roman army. But there were more kind of traditional for the time, um, like military outreaches where they'd send emissaries and and others to, to you know, meet ahead of time and and to kind of, um, you know, see if they could reach some agreement about settling, you know, moving their settlement and, and whether or not that would, you know, maybe avoid the possibility of war. Most of the time it didn't, to be honest, but, but nevertheless, there was still, you know, a sort of diplomacy, believe it or not, that existed between these Germanic tribes and the Roman armies, um, and in this case, um, our friend Othila had um, uh, had been a, a a person who accompanied one of these um, one of these emissaries, the, the Gothic emissary, a general of these Germanic tribes, to um, to meet, you know, across in, in the Roman Empire to meet and and um, you know sort of negotiate uh, the possibility of. Of the the tribe settling on some land that was technically part of the Roman Empire. During that encounter, I mean, it, it surely lasted, you know, several months. Um, Othello, you know, we're not entirely clear on the exact origins, but he encountered um, Christianity and was converted, as a matter of fact, to Christianity, um, probably around the year 340-341, and. Was, a parent, was also very gifted, uh, you know, was a very bright guy. And, um, you know, sort of word spread of, of this convert um, from, from the Gothic tribes who was learning a tremendous amount about, uh, about Christianity. And he was ultimately, confer- uh, you know, baptized and confirmed, this is Ophila, by Eusebius of Nicomedia. And if that name sounds familiar, it hopefully does a little bit. He was, um, you know, one of the chief proponents of the Aryan perspective during the, the Aryan crisis or the Aryan controversy, if you will. Um, and and so Ophelia was baptized and, and really sort of converted to Christianity as an Aryan. And again, this is sort of, I, I, let's keep, you know, keep in mind what, the, the age we're talking about, so we're talking about the 340s. The Council of Nicaea is is 325. So you know you might think, oh well, that was 15 years later. Like what's the what's the deal? But again, it's not like uh, our modern age where the the decrees of the council were immediately promulgated all over the Roman Empire, and and um and so in the in the far reaches of the empire where Ophelia was first encountering Christianity it's very likely that there was no sense even of the controversy. Um, but nevertheless, he, you know, wound up sort of learning and and, and um, growing to understand the faith from the Arian perspective. And um, his great contribution to the spread of Christianity was the translation of either the new testament or you know possibly even the old testament as well but certainly the new testament into um sort of the the gothic tongue gothic language and so this is um you know this is tremendously important right this is one of the key things that um that missionaries focus on you know even even the modern missionary movement you know when you when you're encountering a, a people with the message of Christianity, one of the first things you have to do is establish, you know, a, a language connection and, and work out the translation of Christian concepts into the the native language of the people. Ophila was able to do that for these Gothic tribes. What's even better is that he wasn't, They. what's even better is that he was one of them, right? That he wasn't, um, you know, he wasn't a Roman coming into the tribes. He was one of their own who had converted and who had learned enough about Christianity and knew enough uh, Greek and probably some Latin as well to be able to translate uh, the New Testament. This has a, a really significant impact on the spread of Christianity among the, the, the various Germanic tribes. Um, the the um, you know the sense of his contribution is is hard to overstate in some ways because again we have the sense that that the barbar- the so- so-called barbarians were coming in and 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 you know didn't have any sense of Roman culture or civilization or anything like that and yet um, a number of these Germanic tribes. Uh, wound up converting to arian christianity so the uh it wasn't just the visigoths although again that was where Ophila sort of first started to make a contribution but the Ost- ostrogoths as well and the vandals um other tribes like the Burgund- and we're not going to talk about them but the burgundians and the lombards who will wind up taking residence in northern italy all of these tribes were um, to some degree exposed to Christianity and had some number of converts to it, you know, prior to their real entry into the Roman Empire. Um, You know, it's it's speculative, um, but it's sometimes thought that if it had been even sort of two generations later, when all of these um, invasions, if you will, had happened, even just two generations, it seems it seems possible, if not likely, that all of the invading tribes would have entered the Roman Empire as Christian. Now, again, this is not um, you know, to, to be, be precise. They were Aryans, and so that's, that poses its own problem, if you will, um, in the context of the, the debates that we've already studied. But there was some familiarity in some portion, maybe at least half, of the popula of the population of these Germanic tribes that, um, entered into the Roman empires as Christians. And that's largely due to the contribution of Odoacer. So with that, um, a couple of key moments, if you will, in these various invasions are given on your outline and it's worth, um, it's worth just highlighting them. So the Visigoths, again, kind of get this uh, get this whole <laughs> collapse of the Roman Empire kicked kicked off. Um, the first key defeat, if you will, the, the first major victory for a Gothic tribe uh, happens near Adrianople, uh, which is you know just on the other side of the Balkan Peninsula. So um, you know not. Ne- Sort of closer to Asia Minor, if you will. Um, in the year 376, I'm sorry, 378. You know what I was thinking? 378. Um, led by, um, led by, uh, you know, the, the sort of military, um, mil- this military group of uh, Visigoths. The emperor, the Roman emperor at the time, was actually killed during this battle. It's not to say that the Battle of Adrianople, you know, dramatically shifted any, you know, any uh, territorial boundaries. I mean, obviously, Theodosius in 381 is is making Christianity the official religion and is still exercising a tremendous amount of authority. But um, the the age Adri- the battle at Adrianople is significant um, because it was an instance of the Roman army being defeated, and not just. Not just the, you know, not just like the the JV Roman army, but like the real one. The emperor was there, right? I mean, the emperor had joined the battle and was killed. And so, if you think about the the sort of the psychological impact as well, you know, they replaced the emperor and there was a new one, and and you know, he was able to, um, you know, Theodosius, as as we've seen already, we've met him. He was able to kind of uh, get get a get a handle on things. But, but again, the, the psychological impact of killing the emperor in, in a military victory, you know, was, was pretty significant for the Visigoths. They, they really, um, you know, a few decades later, really make tremendous progress and, and become, you know, for a while, almost unstoppable in their, in their invasion into the, the boundaries of the Roman Empire under the great leader, military leader, Alaric. Who really is one of the great, um, I mean, it's hard to compare across ages, but certainly in the, you know, in this period of, you know, the first several centuries AD, Alaric is among the more notable military leaders, um, where he basically moved all the way across Asia Minor, across Turkey, across modern day Greece, eventually, um, eventually making into Italy. It took probably about 10 years or so. Um, so I don't want to give the impression that it was, you know, just like in a couple months, he moved all the way across the continent. But he essentially moved from Turkey uh, to Italy, you know, I'm just shorthanding it here, and moved down the Italian peninsula, importantly, um, down the Italian peninsula, reaching Rome um, uh, in the year 410. Um, and and he captured the city and plunders it, sacks the city of Rome in the year 410. The, um, you know, if killing the killing the Roman emperor in the Battle of Adrianople was you know kind of a symbolic moment, certainly the sacking of the city of Rome by Alaric was, in in the kind of popular imagination, a tremendously significant um, event Uh, if you think about you know it's hard to compare it right to to us today Um, at the time Constantinople was really the capital but you know Rome had this place right the Roman emperors the city of Rome and its ancient glory you know it'd be like you know DC or maybe New York or Philadelphia like one of the old major cities of this country being sack, being you know, being um, taken over by an invading force, who had moved, again, a tremendous distance across the, uh, uh, through the Roman Empire, without facing any real resistance. I mean, they, they, they won battles. They were just unstoppable um, for a period. And, you know, it's, it's the sack of Rome in 410, and, and the, sort of the aftermath, right, that leads to Augustine and the, the sort of the argument. Um, that he engages in the city of God about, um, about, um, you know, it's the fault of the Christians or whatever the the glorious Roman empire has fallen. Um, but nevertheless, you know, in, in people's minds, something very significant had happened. There was still, you know, a Roman emperor, there was still, you know, a tremendous amount of territory controlled by the Roman emperor, but, um, sort of psychologically something something very important had happened by 410 with the stacking uh, under Alaric. Alaric, interestingly enough um wanted to keep moving um he wanted to keep moving down the down the boot if you will of italy um and and possibly explore north africa um and it was on this this next journey that that he um that he died um um you know on his way essentially to north africa so the visigoths kind of uh, eventually are in are in a little bit of limbo um in terms of the, the vast majority of the you know the army was in kind of southern italy and they're eventually um They're eventually forced into, um, you know, what what was then called Gaul, you know, we'd recognize today is essentially France, and they eventually were pushed a little bit further west into uh, modern day Spain. Here, let me go back to that map so you can see this is essentially where they um, end up. So you see. The Visigoths, where are the where in this upper map here, for um, my windows are in the way. In the year 490, uh, the Visigoths have been pushed into essentially modern-day Spain. Uh, for a period, though, they kind of owned Italy, but were, wound up being pushed, you know, up into France and then and then down into Spain by other Gothic tribes. Um, so those are Visigoths. The Vandals, uh, our next um, our next tribe, if you will, the Vandals um, were um, were able to enjoy kind of similar success in in coming up, and and in this case, um, they at various times, just to give you a sense of how sort of fluid these situations were, at various times the Vandals were in, in Gaul in modern day France, in North Africa, and um, and then ultimately in the year, as you can see on your on your outline, in the year 455, the Vandals sacked the city of Rome. Then after that, um, they would wind up kind of. Uh, being pushed, in this case by the Ostrogoths, back down the boot and across the Mediterranean where they would settle in in um, North Africa. And you can see that, that here. It's also in this middle period of the, the fifth century, of the 400, that we see the appearance of um, Attila the Hun. <laughs> Which is like one of those things that you kind of you know you forget about these characters that you sort of hear vaguely um, as part of like the ancient past. Um, the Huns were an entirely different you know sort of non non Germanic um, um, tribe, and Attila uh, was sort of running roughshod over continental Europe, and and eventually um, you know tried to seize upon the opportunity that that was clearly available um, to to advance in, in Roman territory. And Attila engaged probably more with the Vandals than with the Roman army. Although there is a very famous encounter uh, of Attila with the, the Roman army outside the city of Rome where it's thought that um, Leo I may have played a key role in leading um, sort of Rome, the resistance of the Roman army. That's Pope, pope Leo the which may seem a little hard to believe. Um, you, you wouldn't think necessarily of the Pope taking that role. But at this time, the Pope, you know, the Bishop of Rome in, in a lot of ways functioned something like the mayor of Rome as well. He had some real kind of administrative responsibilities and while, you know, Leo wasn't seen first and foremost as a military leader, uh, he was, you know, he was the bishop. Um, he certainly was the one, you know, the figurehead, the leader of Rome. And so with this threat from Attila, um, you know, he would take a, an important role in, in helping to resist. But as you can see, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't enough uh, as as a few years later, in 455, Vandals sacked the city of Rome. Just quickly, um, the Ostrogoths, again another one of these Gothic tribes, thought to be half of a little bit western origin, um, they next uh, work their way into um, work their way into the Roman Empire as well, and will eventually as you can see, um, occupy, you know, what is it, it, at the end of the fifth century, what is effectively, um, you know, the, the sort of Italian peninsula, if you will. Just to give a sense, I'm throwing a lot at you in terms of, you know, sort of these movements. And and again, I don't want us to get too lost in it, but to take a step back and how these Invasions were having an impact on the the Roman Empire. Um, hang on one sec. Um, the 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 armies, the the military of these various tribes were essentially um, running a show in in the Roman Empire, but they didn't immediately sort of seek to you know, kill the Roman emperor or or anything like that. They simply decided, well, we can just use the sort of the Roman emperor as our puppet. And if if he stops agreeing with whatever we want, we'll just get rid of him and replace him with another. So just to give a a concrete example of that. And again, the the details are less important than the, the sort of high level takeaway between the years 455 and 476. So in a 20 21 year period 455 to 476 nine emperors nine Roman emperors were uh, set up and deposed by the by various you know Germanic army uh, leaders by by the by the gothic tribes basically so every roughly every two years or so on average you know one of these gothic tribes said no 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 we don't like you know, the current Roman em- emperor, we're going to we're going to get rid of this one and, and replace him with someone else. And then, you know, about two years later, they get tired of that one and, and move on. The point is simply the Roman, the, the position Roman emperor or Western Roman emperor, if you will, continued to exist throughout the, uh, you know, throughout the 400s. But in practice, it was kind of just a title. You know they didn't really exert uh, power or leadership over the western half of the Roman Empire for for the, the majority of the fifth century. Um, instead, the one who really kind of got, you know was in charge of the, sort of the western half of the of the empire, or at least you know what we would recognize today as Italy, let's say, was you know whichever of these uh, Germanic tribes was enjoying. Their their moment in the sun militarily. This all comes to an end. This sort of endless cycle, or you know, frequent cycle of deposing an empire, emperor and then replacing him, and, and all of this finally comes to an end in the year 476. Um, back when the uh, the general whose name is rendered a number of different ways. I just typed it into your box. Sometimes it's, it's Odovacar, Vakar, Odo Watsar, O D O A C E R. I think is maybe slightly more common. It, it, again, it, you just have to, you know, be willing to accept the flexibility in how different authors, um, you know, uh, present his name because it did not translate very easily. Um, but nevertheless, Odo um, you know, finally got tired of this idea that when they deposed the Roman emperor, they would you know replace him. They would they would pick a new one. And so in 476, he deposes the guy who was at the time the, the Western Roman emperor, and then just decides uh, we're we're not appointing a new one. He takes the imperial regalia, like the symbols of the Roman Empire. Uh, the you know the different you know uh, different uh, like shields and and even crown that the sort of the Western Emperor would wear. He just takes all of the imperial regalia and and sends it to Constantinople and says uh, you know that that's that's enough. You can have this back. Um, you know we we don't have any use for this. Um, there's no there's no function in having a Roman Emperor here, a Western Roman Emperor, and so at that point. And, and that's why sometimes you'll see, uh, you know, subject to some, you know, a lot of qualification, you'll see that the year 476 is sometimes given as sort the end of the, the Roman Empire. Um, because at that point, there stopped being a Western Roman Emperor, and there would not be another one in the West until Charlemagne. Um, as we'll see, but for a few centuries, there there were simply these various tribes, you know, occupying control over parts of Italy or France or Spain or, or what have you. Um, and so, you know, 476 is kind of given as the end, but you know, it's a little bit misleading, right? Because for decades leading up to that moment, there was very little um, real control that that the Roman emperor had over the Western half of what had previously been the Roman empire. Okay. Let me pause there. Any questions or something to clarify or or comments? Okay. One last, Tribe. Um, I want to mention, sort of, uh, before going to the Franks. The Franks are going to be a little bit more in depth. We're going to look at, but the Lombards um, will will follow, if you will, the Ostrogoths into Italy and come into conflict with them, frankly, as well as with the Vandals, um, and will eventually fail in their mission to kind of conquer all of of Italy. Um, instead they have to settle for for northern Italy and the, the region that still bears their name, Lombardy, in the um is sort of the northern region of Italy. And you know, they they were a very effective um, I think I mentioned this uh, you know last time when I was talking about why, you know, why I think the Dark Ages is kind of a misnomer. The Lombards, you know, entered the Roman Empire as, as Christians, as Arian Christians. But even more than that, they entered with, uh, you know, a, a certain culture that that, that existed. Um, and and so when they get situated in, in northern Italy, you see very quickly the promulgation of a system of laws that the king, the Lombard king, issues. Um and again, a legal system, however primitive we might think it is, or whatever, but a legal system is is sort of a, a mark of a certain amount of advancement. Which is to say that you know even the the mere existence of of laws suggests uh, the you know the sort of the existence of a culture and you know some relationship to authority and some under some conception of order, right? the, you know, the, the idea of, you know, sort of in the popular imagination of like the uncivilized barbarians and, and, all of this, you know, really misses that, that aspect. It's, you know, you have this sense of sort of chaos and disorder and just marauding tribes, you know, just, you know, killing and burning and, and looting and all pillaging. Um, and, and again, I'm not, I don't want to pretend that, you know, it, 1230 every every day they were pausing you know for afternoon tea and 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 you know you know doing yoga and and whatever else um it's not like they're you know by our standards like these super civilized you know tribes or something but by the standard of the time you know they were you know there was some cohesion some social cohesion they had legal systems they had you know a limited amount of of art believe it or not like sort of traditions of art in again like some of these gothic tribes like the lombards and others and so um what's fascinating is how these cultural um imports if i could say that will you know eventually become kind of part of the prevailing Italian, if you will, sort of Western European cultures. And so, you know, Sp- Spain and France are, are impacted by the, you know, the generations of the Visigoths and Ostrogoths that were there, you know, maybe in subtle ways, but, but nonetheless, you know, Northern Italy is clearly, you know, the, the Lombards were, were dominant there for over two centuries. And so there are certain aspects of that culture that will influence Italian culture moving forward. And so, Um, You know, all of this to say, uh, you know, by the standards of, you know, the aqueducts and the, you know, the great, uh, you know, the the Latin poetry of of Virgil and and the oratory of Cicero, you know, these tribes maybe didn't have that, Um, you know, they maybe weren't so, so advanced as, as, as that. But it would be a mistake to think that there was sort of absolutely no element of advancement or, or civilization. Uh, it's, it's just not borne out by the by sort of by the evidence of, of what we saw when they when they entered the Roman Empire. Another very good example of this, to just kind of keep uh, keep moving down the the page on your outline, is the Franks, um, uh, sometimes you know known as the Frankish Kingdom. Now the Franks, I, I need to, um, or we need to pay attention to a sort of shift in in um, relationship between the the, tri- the the Germanic tribe, and the church, and it's going to become tremendously important when you when you look at you know the, the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths and the Vandals. There's very little sort of meaningful interaction with the Pope. Um, and, you know, by and large, they didn't get too involved in in that, or they didn't have any use for the Pope. They, they I mean, the, the army just kind of controlled them. Um But the Franks are going to mark a key shift because the, the story of their development, as we'll see, involves... And a kind of alliance with the Pope, with the Church, that will, in many ways, sort of dramatically shift Western history. Um, that sounds a little dramatic, but let's see, you know, whether whether it lives up to its uh, its billing here. So the Franks, uh, there are kind of a, a couple different lines, dynastic lines, uh, and the first is really uh the the first is known as the merovingian dynasty uh it's on your outline but just in case you don't have it uh oh i spelled it wrong sorry one sec so the the merovingian dynasty and and don't um you know don't think too hard it's simply referring to sort of the like the 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 guy that was like the head of this, of this tribe, um, and his name was Merovech, And so the Merovingians are essentially the sons of Merovech, And, um, you know, he was sort of the leader of the tribe, um, going back to when it, it kind of became the leading tribe of the, the Franks. So the Franks have, um, a number of families. Uh, I mean, all of these tribes are kind of set up this way it was a number of different families but you know part of a same broader tribe so for the franks the leading family was the so-called Merovingians and importantly um uh we're going to um see how uh the, the franks are you know really going to reconsolidate in many ways um portions of the roman empire but but first the King of the Franks in, at the end of the fifth century, a guy called Clovis, uh, first becomes King in 481, as you can see from your outline, but in 496 Clovis converts to Christianity. And here I think it's, you know i i always i think i'm hesitant when it comes to describing motivation to conversions I and mean, you know obviously it's very hard to know but in this case the likely um cause of his conversion the likely driving force was a woman uh was his wife who was a woman named clotilda and clotilda uh so clovis marries her in 493 and unlike many other of, of the sort of the Germanic um, families, Clotilda came from a family that just happened to be Orthodox, if you will, um, you know Orthodox Christian as in not Arian, not Eastern Orthodox, right? But like Orthodox as in the Council of Nicaea and Constantinople. And so uh, Clovis marries Clotilda, and uh, you know, it's I, I again. I don't think it's any real coincidence. Three years later, Clovis converts from what he previously was not a Christian. He was the sort of pagan previously, and he converts in 496 to Christianity, but specifically to the you know the Orthodox Catholic version of Christianity. This is a key moment in, in the year 496 when he does this because, of course, you know the king converts. That meant you know, much like what we saw with Constantine, you know, there's a, a kind of domino effect where everyone basically starts to convert, and, and before long, the whole the whole tribe has converted, and, and they followed. You know, the the Arian tribes. You know, if the king converted to Arianism, so did everyone else. In this case, um, the Franks convert to Orthodox Catholic Christianity. Uh, in, in following uh, following Clovis, marking the first of these Germanic tribes, so the the Franks are the first one, first ones to to convert to the Orthodox faith. Up until this time, um, you know, at all the tribes seen the Vandals, the Ostrogoths, the Visigoths, the uh, uh, the Lombards were all Aryans. Um, but now the Franks are. Um, are the first to embrace uh, Orthodox Christianity or Catholicism, and this will have a really important uh, impact because the Franks are going to become sort of the dominant tribe over the next few centuries. And the fact that they, you know, were were Orthodox certainly helped, um, you know, reassert um, Orthodox Christianity across the you know across western europe if you will okay um so we're gonna fast forward we're gonna stay with the frame but we're gonna fast forward this is the first like really kind of somewhat abrupt um skipping of of a you know a a kind of couple centuries worth of time to trace the trajectory of the of the Frankish kingdom. Um, So you have the situation where um you know the Franks are are basically set up, you know, where they ended up if you remember from the the map is essentially modern day France, right? How we get the name. And um so for the five hundreds, the six hundreds you know into the 700s the, the Franks are, are basically there and they come into this situation in the middle of the uh, 8th century in the middle of the 700s where there's kind of a um, there's kind of a uh, a breakdown setting in with the the leading with the with the ruling family the so-called Merovingians um, you know, generational, um, decay, if you want to call it that just a number of, uh, Frankish Kings that were not very motivated, that were not very effective, uh, had been in control throughout the 600s and into the 700s. And there's a real danger now that's um, that's setting in, in that the. Other tribes like the Lombards and others are pushing against some of the, the the Frankish territory. So I think you know hopefully this is clear by now just in this description. But the the Germanic tribes weren't just you know fighting the Roman army back when it existed; they were fighting each other too. And so the uh, the Franks were facing pressure from, um, especially the Lombards, but but other other tribes as well. And at the same time, at the same time, the Pope um, in, in the 700s was getting very, very care, uh, concerned for a similar a similar reason, which is that it looked like once again uh, the Lombards were going to overtake the city of Rome and kind of just dominate the entirety of the Italian the um, Italian Peninsula. So you have a, a unique situation that arises in the middle of the 700s. You have the Lombard, uh, I'm sorry, the the Merovingian dynasty, the family, the sort of the, you know, like the ruling family, right? Like in England, it's like a hereditary line. And um, what happened was the the son married a foreigner, and then sat down with Oprah, and and it really was very, very poorly received. And and this caused them to reach out to the Pope because they couldn't handle all the bad press. No, it's just none of that's true. Um, but what happened was the Merovingian dynasty is decaying, maybe not unlike the current one in England. I mean, it's already decayed, I guess. But um, they, they're in trouble. And there's this other family, right? There's this other... Uh, family within the Frankish kingdom, another another one of these families that's kind of taking a leadership role and especially has uh, you know has a, a very strong uh, military leader who was essentially it wasn't the king obviously because it was the wrong family but was kind of like a the major captain if you will in the, the army this guy's name was Charles Martel. So Charles Martel is um is sort of leading the uh the, the Franks to try and hold things together so he's becoming the kind of de, de facto leader of the Franks but he's not he's not a member of the right family right so he can't be the king but he's the one kind of running the show he's he's organizing the military he's keeping them um he's keeping them together at the same time you have the pope a number of popes, really, in the middle of the 700s, getting very, very worried that the dam is going to burst, the city of Rome is going to be completely taken over, and they're going to be, um, you know, really captive to, in this case, the Lombards. So, starting in around the year 739, the, the pope and his successors will, st- will sort of start a relationship, a negotiation with the Franks, because they see the main um, source of assistance for helping resist the Lombards as being the Franks. They shared a common enemy. The, the, the Pope and the Franks shared a common enemy. So the Pope says, you know, maybe you can help me and I can find a way to help you. Charles Martel initially refuses this. Um, and and so, you know, nothing, nothing happens Charles' brother, I'm sorry, son, son. Um, his name was Pippin, or Pepin, Pippin, or Pepin. Um, sometimes called Pippin the Short, or Pepin the Short. It occurs to me that since we've only met virtually, you, you don't know that I could also be, you know, Daniel the Short. I'm, I'm, I'm five five, and you know, whatever. So I'm a little sensitive around these things. Um, but Pippin is is a, a tremendous, um, like his father Charles, is a tremendously effective military leader, and and he's kind of running, uh, he's kind of holding things together for the Franks while the, the the Merovingian king, the guy who has the title, is kind of um, you know asleep asleep at the at the switch, and so finally in the year you know leading up to the year 751 an arrangement is made um, between Pippin, who's a member of this other family and and the Pope. And what happens is there's an appeal. Pippin sends an appeal to Pope Zacharias. And he basically writes the Pope with a question, dear Holy Father, I hope you are well. How about this COVID? and then he writes, what, basically he poses a question. He lays out that there's this kind of, something's not right with the Frankish kingdom. Because you have a situation where the, the, the sort of the title, the royal title, is passed down through a single family, right? The Merovingian. But they're not exercising the royal power. So the the exercise of the royal power included protecting and leading and governing, but the Merovingians, you know, they'd kind of just fallen out of that. They, they, it was just had decayed. Meanwhile, this other family really beginning with Charles Martel was effectively exercising the royal power. They were, you know, the military leader and they were kind of governing uh, the Frankish kingdom. They were keeping everything together. So Pippin raised to the, Pope Zacharias, and says, Dear Holy Father, what do you think about this? Um, you know, it seems a little messed up to me. That's not a direct quote. Um, and so the Pope sort of takes this into account and responds that this is not the proper state of thing, that the Pope says the, the, um, the, the actual exercise, the sort of de facto exercise of power is more important than the, the 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 title to power, or the de jure. Um, is, are you familiar with this, like sort of the idea of de facto versus de jure? It's like, de facto is like, in fact, like who actually exercises something, de jure is like, according to the law, like who has like the legal claim. And you know, a lot of times the idea is that these are supposed to be the same, right? Um, but there sometimes are differences. And so in the the de facto leader of the Frankish kingdom, right. Was, was Pep was Pippin the short. It was his his father before him, Charles Martel, and then Pippin. The de jure leader of the Frankish kingdom was the Merovingian king. And so Pippin writes to the Pope and says, you know, this doesn't seem right. What do you think? And the Pope writes back, you know, "Dear dear Pippin, um, yeah, I thank you very much for your letter. I agree with I agree with you. This is a problem, and the the one who exercises the royal power that that is the sort of the one who should be the king. And so, in 751, this all gets worked out, and with the support of the Pope, Pope Zacharias. The Merovingian king um, is essentially banished to a monastery, and Pippin the short in, in 751, I think it's on your outline, right, is crowned by the Pope as the king of the Franks. So this is the, like this is one of the moments in the class where I, I start to feel like maybe I'm a little bit nuts um, because I get way too excited about this moment because like this is one of the pivotal moments in Western history in ways that they could not have ever imagined, right? It's just impossible to have forecasted what this was all all leading it was going to lead to. You have the Pope aligning with um, a, a political leader, a military leader, to sort of give and take away kings, kingdoms, kingdoms. He says to the Merovingian line, the Merovingian dynasty, you're out. And he says to the, now the new dynasty is known as the Carolingian after after Charles Martel, the grandfather. So that name Charles is, is, um, is uh, rendered Carol, C-A-R-O-L. And, and so um, now the dynasty has shifted from the Merovingians to the Carolingians. But again, it was shifted because the the blessing of the Pope, if you will, enabled uh, Pippin to take control of the Frankish kingdom. Now, look, in exchange, the Pope also got the support, the military support of Pippin in resisting the Lombards. So sort of the Pope, it was, it was a quid pro quo, to use a sort of a, a term that was very much on, on on the news in the last several years, the, the Pope gets... Military protection from Pippin. Pippin gets the the blessing, literally and figuratively, of the Pope to now be made king. By the way, there's never any like, you know, hey, we should sit down and talk about like, can the Pope really do this? Um, the issue is, he had become such a key figure in the sort of the western half of, uh, or what used to be the western half of the Roman Empire. He was sort of universally acknowledged as having a kind of special authority that he was able to, he, this was seen as a legitimate, a legitimate action. But again, the consequences of the sort of acknowledgement of the Pope's authority, the Pope's ability to give and take away kingdoms basically sets up the relationship between Church and state between papacy and empire between the popes and king that will last for the next 1,100 years, maybe a little bit longer. Um, and, and it all starts, you know, essentially here. This is the first time you see, you know, a, a western, a sort of western political kind of let's call it secular—not in the modern like secular, non-religious sense, but like uh, like earthly power. Or entering into essentially entering into an alliance with the church, with the Pope, where the Pope's authority is lent to grant legitimacy to this sort of earthly kingdom. In this case, switching the dynastic lines, which was no small, you know, you think about, again, it's not, you know, we don't know a ton about these cultures, but, you know, tribal cultures were, I mean, the, the family line was tremendously important, right? Um, and I think even in our modern conception of of, of royalty, we, we get that right. You know, it's all through the bloodline and who's born to whom. And so the idea of switching, um, you know, at the at the command or the at the decision of the Pope has you know, tremendously important consequences for the next millennium, um, and, and will set up the Pope as you know key a key sort of power. Player uh, in in Western in Western European politics and and this again I, I, to be clear I'm saying this is a momentous uh, really significant occasion event in the history of Western civilization in the history of the Church I'm not saying that it's necessarily a good one um, you know as we'll see this this kind of mutually uh, beneficial quid pro quo type Relationship with uh, a a military ruler, uh, making him the king, at times will be of great benefit to the church. At times will be of great detriment to the church and and to the popes even personally. And so, um, you know, don't I don't I don't want it to seem like this was you know we should we should say oh this was a you know great moment in church history. I don't know it was it was a really significant moment in church history. I do know that. All right, let me take a breath. Any questions? Okay. Um, oh, so let me um, let me mention it's on, on the outline uh, something known as the donation of Constantine. And you'll, you'll see the way I rendered it in the, on the outline is the false donation. The so there was this deal, right, between um, Pippin and Pope Zacharias, Pope Zachary, if you want. And as part of the deal, oh, hold on. as part of the deal, um, Pippin sort of signed off, if you will, on a a basically a decree granting to the Pope a certain amount of geographic territory. You know, he basically gives him certain territory that becomes, um, the, you know, the Pope's kingdom. Um, hang on one sec. I can show this to you. How do I move this? Hang on one sec. it's it's yeah so well um don't worry too much about this other stuff but do you see okay on the lower left here again this is eight the year 840 we're a little bit ahead of of um you know where where we all are in the story but this i don't know what color that is maybe black um like cutout that's that says papal states this is a, a series of cities basically um that are given by pippin to pope zacharias um for his control now here's the thing there needed to be some kind of um rationale for this I mean, it seemed likely that it was just something that sort of negotiated. The the you know the Pope wanted to retain a certain amount of autonomy. He didn't want to always be under the thumb of these various tribes, and so, again, as part of this deal, if you will, uh, Pippin agrees that more than just the city of Rome, but these surrounding areas all the way across the peninsula, sort of resulting in the papal states will be given to. Um, will be given to the Pope now. The way this was justified was by the appearance, let's call it uh, coincidental or you know, one of those things like, Oh, hey, we found this, like in a behind a picture frame that we bought at the auction. You know, there was this document that nobody knew about, and the idea of the so-called false donation of Constantine was that um, when Constantine, the idea of this document was that when Constantine left Rome for Constantinople in the 4th century, when he was sort of you know picking up camp and moving the capital east, he left this territory that's now called the Papal States, he left this territory to the Pope for his control. And so the idea was that Constantine had made his decision all along that the Pope was supposed to have a little kingdom for himself, kind of around Rome and in central Italy, and that he was to be sort of the unquestioned political sovereign, like literally a a king uh, of a territory. And so this was used as the justification for the creation, the you know the official recognition by the by the Franks of the papal states in uh, in 750. Uh, in the 750, and the papal states just you know you may have some sense of this. The papal states will last until the year 1870. It's during the first Vatican Council. You know, in 1870, that that uh, finally the you know the, the, the Prussian the forces of the Prussian army combined with you know the Italian revolutions um, taking place in the late 19th century put an end to the papal states. But for over a, a, a millennium, for over a thousand years, the Pope was also a political ruler. Was also a king of these papal states, and it started with this relationship with the the franks with the carolingians and the justification was this document the donation of constantine saying that it was you know constantine's wish however in the 15th century in the 1400s um you know in the renaissance era what we think of um people started looking scholars started looking at you know at, at documents And one of the things they were, you know, doing as scholars was sort of studying the development of languages and they realized, you know, you can study a language and see how words, you know, enter into, um, enter into the vocabulary, um, and, you know, get some sense of the placement, right, of, um, roughly when that text is from. And so if we encountered, um, you know, a, a piece of Shakespearean literature. Uh, you know, if a hundred years from now we encountered that or whatever, you know, we would have some sense if, if we were students of the English language that, um, in fact, this is, this is several centuries old, right? This wasn't from you know ninth, the 1900s or something. Similarly, if I if I gave you a text and I said, here's um here's a document that's dated back to, um, you know the 12th century in England, and the text was like, LOL, WTF is going on here, can you believe those crazy Irish, um, uh, you know, smiley face emoji, you'd say, no, I don't I don't think that was from the 12th century, you know, you would have uh, an understanding of the way language developed to know that that's, that's the wrong century, that's not from there. That's what happened in the 1400s, is... Um, a number of scholars see this document justifying the papal state, and they say there's no way this was written in the fourth century. It's absolutely impossible that Constantine drafted this. That that in Constantine's era, there are words here that didn't exist. Um, there are references that don't make sense, and so the whole thing was, uh, you know, discovered to be essentially a forgery used to justify. The creation of the papal state, and, and in fact, it was dated to the eighth century, where we are now. Um, so exactly who drafted it, you know, is is a mystery, but that it was not, you know, a fourth-century text tied to Constantine, but was rather, you know, probably an eighth-century text dated to this whole arrangement between the papacy and, and the Franks, you know, seems very very likely. Again, in a way. Um, the de facto uh, leader uh, sort of rulership over that territory is what mattered. And so the Pope is, in fact, the king of the papal states, as I say, for over a thousand years. And this was the justification. Um, but it's, it seems important to note in the midst of all of this, you know, really important develop, all of these really important developments between church and state, that the underlying justification for the creation of the papal states uh, was, you know, was a, a forgery. was a a phony document. okay any questions does this make sense anybody yeah good good um it's just it's hard to get i've never learned any of this before so it's interesting good so who protected the Roman Empire for the century for the following, you know, was it one dynasty or? You mean um, after the creation of the Papal States? Yeah, yeah. Well, essentially the Franks, for a while, are going to be the protectors of the Pope and, and the Papal States. I mean, Charlemagne, we'll get to Charlemagne after our break, but Charlemagne will be sort of the, you know, the protector in subsequent in subsequent centuries, it's really going to be a, a variety of sort of European powers, different different kings, different leaders, who will protect um, the the papal states. Honestly, you know the pope the pope had an army, right? The papal states had an army. It was like a fully functioning country. You know, they had like their own passport, they had their own stamps. Uh, I don't know, if they had their own stamps. But, um, you know, it was a fully functioning country. They had their own army and everything. They were never very large, you know, never large enough to be a, a sort of major power in Europe. But they entered into a number of alliances over the centuries to ensure their protection. And they had something very, very useful. The popes had something very, very useful in sort of negotiating these alliances, which is that they were seen as God's representative on Earth. It turns out that goes a long way in negotiation. Um, and so again, I, I don't want to make it sound entirely cynical, but certainly the rising status of the Pope as a spiritual leader, as the leader of the Church, um, you know, will continue as we move through the Middle Ages. Will continue to um, ensure that you know the Popes are able to be a quite significant player in you know in the development of Western Europe. Did the Pope try to use his armies to expand his territory, or is he just happy with his Papal States? Yeah, good question. And it was in, it was, um, there are a few sort of episodes in the thousand years of the Papal States, uh, very modest attempts at expansion, uh, none of which ever really got very far. Um, And and most Popes were not that interested in expanding. It was more a... um, they just like to have a sort of the protective cushion. That's not a technical term. Um, of having, you know, a kind of carve out of geographical territory between themselves and and others that were, you know, in northern Italy or southern Italy. But they never were one. You know, the, as as a country, if you will, they never were one for for really um, engaging in expansion. Did they go to war? Did they actually engage in battle? His armies? At times, yeah. Not not right away, but through the Middle Ages, there there instances. Um, during the Crusades, uh, I don't remember the exact number of. Um, well, when we get there, maybe it'll be in my notes. I just don't recall hand. I, I believe the armies of the the papal states contrib- You know, I, they did contribute some. Um, you know, soldiers to the crusading effort to the Holy Land. Even, you know, even in the 19th, I mean, just to fast forward to the very end, even in the 19th century, the papal, the army of the papal states is, is engaged in, in battles, mm-hmm. like legit battles against Italian revolutionaries and against the, the Prussian, you know, sort of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Prussians. And all of those forces that are sort of swirling around in the 19th century um, are, put, are putting pressure on the papal states and the army was, well, was engaged. Excellent. Let's, um, I see 817. So let's uh, take 15 minutes and come back a little after 830, like 833. Why not? Thanks. Anything you could, uh, with the wonders of modern computers, could you pass on those maps? Oh, yeah. I'm going to post it, uh, on, um, Populi. Yeah. I'll do that now. (laughs) <laughs> if you could, it would be really great. They look like a really to look at. Yeah, thanks. No, I, I actually normally would hand them out now that you mention it. I don't know. It, it's funny. I, I knew I wanted to show them, but it didn't occur to me until as we were going that I, I should have posted them ahead of time. So, yeah, they'll be there. And you'll see there are a number of other um, squares. I mean, there are six squares at various times. It just shows the development. Um, and, and one of the key takeaways, to be honest, is just the fluidity of the situation you know the movement of the kingdoms and and how the situation was kind of ever-changing but yep i'll um as soon as we uh, as I turn my camera off i'll post it so give me about five minutes okay might you just go out and get a color printer no 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 don't worry about that i don't know if you need to do that all right thanks thanks for responding about the paper <laughs> oh sure of course i don't, I don't trust computers so I, I don't worry whether it's going to get there no, not not at all. Came no problem. Opened up no problem. Are we reading? I will. Looking forward to it. Um, so the, really the, um, individual responsible for, um, expanding sort of turning in, turn, turning, the Frankish kingdom into, you know, one of tremendous reach and, and power and importance, um, was one of the sons of Pippin. So Pippin died in 768. He divided the kingdom between um, his his two living sons, one of whom died um, within a few years. And uh, his remaining son was named Charles. And so uh, Pippin's son Charles... Would you know go on sort of take leadership and oversee a period of you know really dramatic expansion and and flourishing. As a result, we know his son Charles by the sort of smushing together of Charles the Great, so Charles Magna, Magna meaning Great, uh, put him together, and you've got Charlemagne. Um, It's interesting because. Oh, uh, well, I don't know. If it's interesting, but um, you know the Carolingian dynasty is named after Charles. is named after Charles, and sometimes people think that it's um, uh, Char Charlemagne because he's the one. He's like the, the most uh, prominent representative of it, and all of this. But it's really Charlemagne's grandfather, Charles Martel, whom I mentioned before. That's that's it. That it's named after, but Charlemagne um would you know really rise to the level of sort of the the most one of the most important political leaders rulers in western europe um you know arguably for the you know for the first millennium ad um you know obviously constantine's in there there's some you know augustus caesar in the earlier in the, in the roman empire but once you get past the you know, the, the fourth, fifth century. It's hard to find another uh, political leader in, in west in the western in Western Europe who's as important as as consequential as Charlemagne. Um, you know, Pippin Pippin the, the short was a tremendously effective leader, king of of the Franks, uh, and expanded their kingdom. Uh, Charlemagne doubled the size of what his father had, um, uh, had conquered this, uh, you know, at, at its peak, it includes, it included, I should say, all of modern day France, Belgium, Holland, about half of Germany, parts of Austria, Hungary, as well as about half of Italy and, and a part of Spain. Um, and, uh, I po- I did post the, um, the map, but just, uh, I, just to give you a sense um, hang on one sec. Um, in case you don't have it, so lower, or, well, on the, the one on the right hand side, Europe 755. You know, this is essentially what we get with um Pippin, uh, with Pippin, right? Um, 755, he dies, in, in um Pippin dies in I think 768. Um, and so between. Pippin and Charlemagne is uh, from, from that kingdom, if you will, to this you know greatly expanded Frankish Empire, which includes you know considerable it's considerably more land in the continent as well as you know, it's, it may be hard to tell here, but even a little bit a little slice here south of the papal States is also part of the Frankish Empire. And so, you know, as I say, in in geographical terms, it was more than double the size of what Pippin had conquered. This is the largest, uh, sort of by by the measure of you know geographical space, uh, sort of the largest single empire uh, established kingdom under one ruler since. Certainly, since the fall of the Roman Empire, none of the the various Germanic kingdoms, like the Gothic kingdoms, or the, the Lombards, were anywhere uh, near the size scope. You know, while we're here, because this will be the last time we need to look at this map, probably for today. Um, I do want to make one point about, um, you know, the Muslim. Uh, caliphate and, and and Muslim Spain above and and it's to say that you know I know, I know we're way behind in the reading uh, I mean I know our lectures are way behind what the assignments are for Bidmar but I do hope you know regardless of, of whether you're kind of keeping pace with the course or, or if you've you know you know gone on ahead which is which is totally fine I do hope that you um you know have a chance to read. Vidmar's treatment of Islam, um, I think it's it's you know balanced, it's fair. I be, I'm not going to say anything about Islam, um, not because I don't think it's important, um, and and not because it wasn't a you know somewhat significant force in shaping um, in, you know in shaping Western history. Um, it's just you know a little bit outside what I think are sort of the most important things to cover. As you can see, there's a lot of ground, and, and so. Um, while clearly Islam has, you know, some important impacts on the development of uh, Western Europe, uh, I, I will leave the treatment of that to, to Bidmar entirely. So I just refer you to that if you have, haven't had a chance to read it yet. Um, okay. So char- back to Charlemagne. Um, you see the expansion of his kingdom, um, in addition to being, you know, a great general, a great military leader, he was also um, a kind of patron of learning and protector of the church. Once again, during his reign, we see a situation where um, the pope is, you know, counting on. The military might of Charlemagne of the Frankish Empire to sort of protect um, Rome and, and now protect the papal states, and you know to really cement the relationship. Um, it wasn't just that you know he was going to be king of the of the Franks. I mean he assumed that title um, when his well when his. Father died, and then when his other brother died, and it was just him left. He was clearly in charge. But um, you know, with all the expansion, the territorial expansion, and, and really the reestablishment of what seemed like you know the vestiges of the Roman Empire, um, he he kind of seeks that recognition. And so, in the year 800, on Christmas Day of 800, um, in this, in St. Peter's Basilica, as a matter of fact, Charlemagne goes to Rome and kneels before uh, at the time Pope Leo the Third Leo the Third crowns him as emperor. And the symbolism was such that it was as if Charlemagne yeah, Charlemagne were being crowned as as a sort of according to the old imperial way of the, of the Roman empire. So as if, I mean, it's not the same and it's, it's obviously, you know, a, a different set of circumstances, but the, the symbolism of the act was such that it gave the impression of restoring the Roman empire, that Charlemagne was the, you know, the next of the Roman emperors, you know, there, there'd been a, a gap of about uh, what three 200, uh, yeah, 300, 25 years or so, um, but now you know you had Caesar Augustus, you had you know Marcus Aurelius, you had all sorts of balance, you had also Theodosius, lots of great emperors, Constantine of course, and now you have Charlemagne. Again, not literally, but in the in the symbolic sense, the crowning in 800 was like the restoration of the Western Empire. The only difference. Uh, well, I don't want to say the only, but one of the key differences is what was anticipated, you know, 50 years prior, which is you know, Constantine, let's just say, when he assumed leadership of the Roman Empire, or even Theodosius, you know, in the latter half of the 4th century they they didn't rely on the Bishop of Rome, on the Pope, to kind of steal their authority, to kind of you know, put their stamp of approval on it. it, it I mean, the, the Pope wasn't really that source of authority, to be honest. Now, there's a the relationship that's been established between church and state, between Pope and king or emperor, such that the the, the, the blessing, the approval of um, Pope Leo III is a key part, really a key part of this whole action. And... It, it kind of stamped the empire as a, the Frankish Empire as a, a Catholic one. And, you know, we really see the, the blossoming, if you will. I mean, I guess whatever is a little bit short of blossoming is like starting to show the flowers of, um, you know, a kind of church state union that will really be characteristic of the Middle Ages. Charlemagne himself was thought to have believed that what he was doing was establishing Augustine's dream of the city of God on earth. Remember, Augustine had said in the city of God that, you know, ultimately, you know, the heavenly city is beyond, you know, it's it's at the end of the world. But in the in the meantime, if you will, the um, the church, the visible church on earth, is the location of you know what what is what exists of the heavenly city and or the city of God. And Charlemagne thought that, you know, the full the sort of the fullest vision that Augustine had laid out was in fact, you know, an empire whereby the church, you know, was the sort of the guiding light, the guiding principle, but also, you know, that there was a sort of extensive political order that advanced the, the causes and the interests of the church. But that's what he thought, you know, he was, that, that's the sort of the line he thought he was in. Um, so, right. So in addition to, you know, all the territorial conquests, there was a tremendous um, dedication to the, you know, to arts and culture, to learning that, you um, is generally, you know, collectively known as the Carolingian renaissance. And Carolingian just being an adjectival form of Charlemagne or Charles. Um, And so, but this, this happened specifically during, during, during Charlemagne's um, reign. What, what it was, was a, a kind of, well, Renaissance, you know, you, I think you probably know, it means rebirth. Um, and and later, in the you know, 15th century, it's going to mean the rebirth of classical Greco-Roman culture, basically. And to some degree, actually, the Carolingian Renaissance had a component of recovering classical culture, Greco-Roman culture, but also it sought to really advance biblical scholarship and biblical study. Charlemagne was somewhat unique in his approach to dealing with conquered tribes in that so you know you had this sense of like kings and emperors would keep even though it's in the in the 800s or whatever it's still kind of you know it's kind of less well developed than you know when we get to like Louis the Fourteenth or something, but kings had had essentially a court around them, right? Advisors, people that were essentially, you know, uh, on the on the payroll and and were engaged in you know wh- whatever the you know kind of desire of the king was. You know, they'd have courtiers who would you know just do various things and be supported. In, in Charlemagne's um, time, as they were conquering, you know, territory from the Lombards or, um, you know, from other tribes, um, you know, whether it were, were, you know, I think in one case a a member that was sort of tied to the Vandals, um, uh, one of the uh, Visigoths, he, as he's conquering all of these tribes or, you know, components of them he would identify or find out, you know, if there were any like really exceptional people, frankly, that, that were that were you know among the the conquered. And especially again, he had a a desire to promote um, classical and biblical learning. And so if you know he he got word that there was a great theologian among, for example, the Lombards, Rather than saying, well, look, he's not a Frank. I'm not going to, I don't want anything to do with him. Um, you know, he can stay in that, you know, under the thumb of, of, uh, of the, of my kingdom. He would actually bring in all of the, you know, bring in people from other, other tribes to be part of his court. And this really sort of created a dynamic where some of the best and brightest, no matter what their origin may have been, were around um, Charlemagne. And again, this, this is what prompts the Carolingian Renaissance. Um, so, for example, there's a, a guy um, whose I mean his name is Paul, and he was a deacon. So um, he comes creatively comes to us through history as Paul the Deacon, um, but he was a Lombard, and again, uh, typical practice may have been. Just to leave people, you know, conquered tribes alone and 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 kind of subjugate them and and that's that. But Charlemagne got word that this Lombard, Paul the Deacon, was tremendously bright. Um, and so he brought him into his court where where he would, um, you know, be engaged in sort of this intellectual revival. Um, you know, a number of other there are a number of other people. I, I mean, I won't go through all of the. Um, all of the names a, a guy basically from, you know, essentially modern day England, um, name you may know, Al- Alcuin of York, um, tremendously important, um, and, and wound, wound up really leading a, a sort of re- rebirth or redevelopment of, um, monastic life during Charlemagne's time. Um, he was, you know, really in, in interested in engaging and sort of fostering theological discussion and development. Um, he, he convened and presided, Charlemagne, convened and presided over a number of synods across you know, his empire. Um, and, and just to give you a sense, I mean, uh, it may sound strange to our ears, but he participated in the proceedings. Charlemagne did not want to leave the, you know, the arguments sort of the debates about important theolo- theological matters just to the theologians. I mean, he had studied himself. He was tremendously educated in, in a lot of these matters. And so he participated, um, you know, just as much as a, a sort of voice and, and in his mind, protector of the church as, you know, clergy, as, as theologians who, who may have been bishops or, or whatever. And so he took up a tremendously sort of involved position to be the church. Under his reign, sort of as part of this renaissance, um, there was a kind of literary output, a literary revival, um, but again, heavily oriented towards promoting the church. And so books of sermons were prepared um you know to guide preachers. Uh, other books of you know um sort of prayer books were 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 also printed if you you know not printed literally but were copied and prepared for distribution um he had uh, a vision if you will that that he communicated to leaders of the church and you know, we, it probably never got there. But, but again, just to give you a sense that during his time, it was it was a goal that every Christian would be able to repeat the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed. Again, he had this idea that you know there ought to be some baseline level of, of knowledge and learning for for all Christians. Okay, so that's um, Charlemagne. One thing I think that deserves noticing at this point is this is an example of, you know, how this alliance between church and state, between a king or an emperor and a pope can work out all in all, like, pretty well. You know, during Charlemagne's time, the, the interests of the church were very much protected and advanced, you know. He cared about theological matters. He, he wanted the people to know their prayers and you know hear good homilies and this kind of thing. But to the extent that there was you know a precedent being established, a pattern of interaction between church and state, between emperor and king, uh, emperor and pope or king and pope, you know we're going to see before too long how this can go you know sideways, how it can go badly, and so. Um, you know i think it's just important for us to be thinking about uh while while the carolingian renaissance and charlemagne's reign in general are sort of a, a very solid period of development for the church again the 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 seeds of you know future difficulties have, have been planted and are sprouting i'm really into the plant metaphors for some reason also i'm blossoming earlier now the seeds are sprouting it's it's spring right it's appropriate at least I'm making seasonally seasonally appropriate references. Um, Good point. These are the things you're all taking for granted. Um, but anyway, any questions about Charlene? Cause I'm gonna switch kind of topics uh, and, and I don't want it to be too abrupt. So let me just pause and make sure. Are there any questions about Charlene? Okay, so if you see on your outline, this next section on the lower third I titled the growing divide between East and West. It, and I'm going to, you know, hit rewind. We're going to go back to the, the fifth century and then work our way forward again. Um, you know, it's, it's a little bit, again, I, I want to be mindful or I want us to be mindful of, of the, the chronology. And as much as I'd like to tell, you know, the story in kind of linear fashion, it's just, you know, not easy to do. And so we're kind of hitting pause on the Western empire, the Western part of Europe, let's say, in the middle of the ninth century with Charlemagne. So like 850. We're kind of pausing that narrative. We'll get back to it. And we're going to rewind and look at a, at a series of events, most somewhat in the Eastern half, but also in the West, A series of events, you know, from the 5th century onward that really start to to drive a wedge between the Western church and the Eastern church that will ultimately lead to the split, the schism between the two in the year 1054. So what these, you know, next several points have in common is in, in various ways, or not what they have in common, but what they're all sort of a part of showing. Are the various ways in which, um, you know, in the you know five centuries or so leading up to the schism, East-West schism, you see, you know, moments or or periods that kind of preview uh, or yeah preview, you know, what, what is ultimately going to be this this you know pretty definitive split that obviously we still have with us uh, almost a thousand years later. So the first of these, again, rewinding now back to the late fifth century, the first of these is an actual schism. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm switching back and forth just FYI. One of my favorite things to gripe about is that nobody can decide whether the word S C H I S M should be pronounced schism or schism. It's pronounced both ways all the time. I always thought it was pronounced schism. And then just about every professor I had in grad school said "sism," and I just use them interchangeably to try to confuse you. I mean, that's the bottom line. Um, there is no one right way. Um, again, very fine people on both sides of uh, of the pronunciation divide, you know, can make their arguments. I think both are acceptable. So I apologize because I, I myself am so indecisive about this matter. That even in talking about it, I, I constantly flip back and forth, which is seems like the wrong thing to do. You ought to just be consistent and choose one or the other. But you might say, I'm I'm split. There's a schism within myself as to how to pronounce the word. Um, so the first of this sort of examples of this growing divide between East and West is an actual schism between between <laughs> the, the 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 Western church represented by the Pope and the the Eastern Church represented by the Patriarch of Constantinople. Just remember, patriarch is another word, essentially a fancy word for archbishop in this context. So the Patriarch of Constantinople is, is the Archbishop of Constantinople, which is like, you know, one of the most important positions. Not as influential as the Bishop of Rome, as the Pope, but remember, the emperor is still in Constantinople, going back to Constantine's day. And so while all of this stuff is happening in the West that we spent the first two hours talking about, you know, the crumbling of the empire and everything, all of that's going on in the West, but over in the East, you still have an emperor an Eastern Roman emperor who's based in Constantinople and who's trying to kind of hold together the the Eastern half of the empire. Now, this is where the story of Islam is, is like really, really crucial. Um, because the eastern half of the, the the empire, the Roman Empire is what's really tremendously um, under pressure and loses significant territory as a result of the, the growth of, of Islam so nevertheless you have again this emperor, the East, so-called eastern emperor in um, Constantinople and so the, arch, uh, the patriarch of Constantinople the bishop there is you know, a a, a de facto, a a sort of critical leader in, you know, the Eastern half of, of the world. So the, the break that happens is known as the Acacian schism. And the issue is, um, over monophysitism, which I mean, I think goes without saying what that means. So we can just move on to the next, next item. Um, no, yeah, I mean, I, I just think it's a clever thing to say at cocktail parties or whatever, like, oh yeah, what do you think about monophysitism? It's fun to say. Um, in this case, actually, it's a reference to, um, now maybe two classes ago, the, the Council of Chalcedon. So if you recall, um, Council of Chalcedon in 451 had really focused on the, um, the nature, the understanding of the nature of sort of the human and the divine within Christ. And, you know, you, we were called a sort of formulation of, um, fully, fully human, fully divine, or fully God, fully man. So, the one Greek way of expressing that um, concept of, of nature or person is, is the word physis, physis, physis and, um, so the, the Chalcedonian definition, right, is that there, you know within Christ existed a, a complete human nature and a complete divine nature. And the Greek uh, prefix di or dio in this case means two. So the the Council of Chalcedon taught that there were two natures. And we could say that that's uh, a, a sort of definition of a, a diophysite definition or diophysitism, if you want to, you know, make it a noun. And so the Chalcedonian definition was not universally accepted, especially in the East, especially like in the Eastern edge, if you will, of the Eastern Empire, like the the Middle East today is is a big, big area that we're talking about, Um, as well as, um, you know, parts of Egypt, but like modern day Syria. Palestine, Egypt, there were these opponents who didn't think that Chalcedon had it right. Instead, they thought there was only one nature in Christ and that it was divine. So the prefix for for one being mono, um, the the idea was that there was only one nature, the divine nature in Christ. So so these are the monophysites. And so, again, the, the rejection of the two-nature definition, uh, you know, the, the name that we give these folks who thought there was just the, the divine nature are the monophysites, or or we say this the issue was monophysitism. So that's, you know, that's the sort of theological question, right, is, is a rejection of Chalcedon. Now, what we have is, similar to what we'll see later on in the West with the Pope and the Frankish Kings getting involved, you have a pretty close relationship between the Eastern emperor based in Constantinople and the patriarch of of Constantinople. Sometimes the patriarch of Constantinople was essentially a, a puppet of the emperor. So, um, I don't want you to get too bogged down in names, but I'll, I'm just going to type them because it's easier to just give you the names and you know try and um, you know explain it without any names. So the emperor um, at the time was a guy called Zeno, and um, the this is so he's the emperor based in Constantinople of the Eastern half, and the um, and the patriarch of Constantinople is a, a guy called Acacius. Now, that's the emperor is not to be confused with his long lost cousin, the warrior princess. Well, let's just be very clear about that. Um, I think two people understood that joke based on my reaction in the window. People, no, no, Lucas is shaking his head no. He does not approve. Chris, maybe. Okay, so Zeno is the emperor, and Acacius is the patriarch, right? So the two of them are are sort of working together to resolve this this difficulty of some bishops and some leaders in the east like in in palestine and syria are rejecting chalcedon and you know this is very similar to what we actually saw after the council of nicaea with the arians which is one of the solutions when you have a, a sort of thorny technical theological matter to resolve that people aren't happy about, is to come up with a solution that kind of avoids the question entirely. So if you remember when we were talking about Nicaea and Arianism and whatever, in the aftermath, the Arians kind of convinced Constantine and then later his sons to go around uh, the Nicene definition and just avoid the whole issue of, remember we said it was like at one point it's prohibited to use the word ousios in any of its forms. So you don't say he's like the this uh, of the same substance or of a similar substance homo or homoiousias. You just don't say it entirely. Remember, there was this other formula where it was like the son is like the father. It was just simple. It was non-specific. Didn't address, you know, the key question, but it was sought to. It, it was attempting at a compromise that everyone could agree upon. Obviously, it didn't work. But they they try that again here. Um, after Chalcedon, and basically, what happens is the the emperor Zeno tells the patriarch, kind of convinces the patriarch to publish a sort of new definition of um, understanding Jesus's human and divine nature, and, and so on his sort of of his own accord, if you will. The Patriarch, this is Acacius, writes a letter to that was sort of intended to replace the definition of Chalcedon. And, and basically his formulation was that Jesus is consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial to man according in accordance with his humanity. So basically, you know, to simplify this, What the attempted compromise was to say is that just that, that there's two there's two ways in which jesus is you know has has a sort of consubstantiality um uh, with human and divine nature um there's some way in which he's consubstantial with god uh, with the divine and there's some way that he's consubstantial with man through his humanity but it doesn't say how they exist in relation to each other within <clears throat> jesus so it's, again, a kind of uh, avoiding the issue, kind of going around it with a, a decree that was thought to be a kind of compromise um, by, by basically not answering the question that had been settled at, at Chalcedon. So, interestingly enough, most of the Eastern Church, most of the bishops sort of in the Eastern half of the Roman Empire, accepted this definition, this new document. Which is, you know, fairly remarkable if you think about it. there was this general council and there's, you know, a, decree, a number of decrees that were supposed to be binding. Um, but uh, nevertheless, most of the Eastern world was on board with this. The problem was that uh, specifically the, the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, did not accept this alternative or alternate definition, if you will. And... I think it's fair to say that a, a big part of the reason was, if you remember, when we talked about Chalcedon, the influence of Pope Leo the the first and Leo's Tome was really central here, and so Leo's successor as pope felt, you know, like this was really watering down the teaching, that it was kind of undoing the force of uh, of Leo's teaching, and so he rejected it. This rejection of Acacia... Acacius's, um, you know, new definition is what leads to the schism. Basically, um, the Pope sends some ambassadors, some sort of representatives, to go to Constantinople and meet with Acacius. Long story short, they can't work out a deal. Um, you know, Acacius won't won't relent. Uh, the Pope, you know, won't similarly won't go back on the definition that was promulgated at Chalcedon, and They hold competing synods in in East and West where they condemn each other and depose each other. This is the Pope and the Patriarch of Constantinople, um, basically uh, all of which really came to a head in the year 484. So the Acacian schism, um, again, takes place when the, the Pope sort of excommunicates the Patriarch of Constantinople. And the Patriarch of Constantinople responds in kind by excommunicating the Pope in 484. Now there's a split between East and West. It takes about two generations. Yeah, maybe you could say two and a half, two, two and a half generations. I think each, both the Pope and the Patriarch had two successors. Um, and, and, And honestly, not a lot changed except different people were involved. And... In the year 519, um, an agreement was reached between the emperor, the patriarch of Constantinople, and the pope to essentially um, affirm the Chalcedonian definition and revoke the the, the definition that Acacius had had promulgated uh, on his own. And so, in in 519. You know, kind of, it was really a largely, an ima- like, there weren't any theological developments, to be very honest. It was just different people and looking to kind of settle this quarrel. And so the schism ends in 519. So by the standards of schisms, not very long, it's about 35 years. Um, but I think it's worth noting here, because even though there weren't any real major theological um, outcomes here, you know, n- n- no long-term, uh, long-term differences arose from this. Um, you know, the Eastern Church today is is Diophysite. You know, they're not Monophysites. Um, they come back to the Chalcedonian definition. Even though all of that's true, I think it's an important episode, in part because it shows a sort of imbalance in the way Rome, the Bishop of Rome, the Pope is viewed in between the West and the East. And so almost all of the Eastern bishops and sort of the Eastern half were fine with Acacius's formula, but simply the Pope rejecting it in the West was essentially enough to, you know, create the schism and also unite the West in opposition. And so the east does not appreciate, I mean, yeah, appreciate or or want to recognize the sort of overwhelming theological authority of the pope. They see the pope, the bishop of Rome as important, but they see him more and this is a phrase that will, you know, will enter into these debates as um primus inter pares, right? First among equals, which is to say that the patriarch of Constantinople saw himself as an equal to the pope not as a subordinate, not as somebody whose judgment was subject to the approval of the Pope. And, and, you know, this one flashpoint led to a schism, um, that while, while it was resolved, it kind of illustrated the tension, uh, and the difference in, in the view of papal authority that existed between East and West. Does that make sense? Great. Um, so next sort of the next key, I think, figure here and and this is really um uh you know of the of the emperors in that were based in Constantinople after Constantine. I think it's you know, I don't think this is controversial. Um you know, the one with the sort of the most impressive reign. Um, and, and who did the most to expand his his uh, political control as well as a number of other is in a number of, as in a number of other areas was justinian in the sixth century justinian was um you know perhaps the last great emperor based in Constantinople there will be other emperors in Constantinople but you have Constantine, you have Justinian, and then you know you have a lot of people that you know ha- have some impact, but not anything along the, the size and scope of Justinian. He was um, sort of among the sort of hardest working, most ambitious, and most learned, um, sort of most well educated emperors that we really see in the, sort of the centuries you know, from the fourth century onward. Um, just like Charlemagne in 800 um, saw himself as kind of recreating the Roman Empire Yeah. The Roman empire Justinian in, in the 500s kind of imagined that he was, his mission was to restore similarly was to restore the Roman empire that had been lost. And to do this, he undertook a, an incredibly ambitious and somewhat effective um, campaign of, of military um, reconquests. And so while a number, uh, I mean, a good portion of territory had been lost to the Germanic tribes, um, he re- reconquered, um, For uh, just to give you a sense, portions of North Africa, Italy, Spain, and even part a part of Gaul, like modern day France. Remember this is in the 500s, so this is pre, Pre the Franks, um, he was able to reconquer a whole swath of of territory that had been lost to these Germanic tribes. The now, in fairness, the these were not very durable gains. Um, after Justinian dies, within essentially within a generation, most of that had been had been lost again. But under his during his lifetime under his reign, um, there was a tremendous expansion. Um, again, it, it, we should note that it was short-lived. But he was tremendously um, effective and successful against these these various tribes. Uh, he had impressive victories over the Vandals, the Ostrogoths, and the Visigoths. Um, you know he was relentless in during his his reign in trying to recapture as much of the old roman empire as possible he saw himself in doing this by the way he saw himself as being kind of primarily motivated by um religious uh factors that you know it was his responsibility to kind of reclaim territory that had been lost to either in some cases pagan but in, in most other cases these Aryan tribes that he regarded as heretics. Um, so he really saw his 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 mandate, if you will, as as being on behalf of the church. Um, he, was, he was deeply engaged with his with his faith and with the you know with the church. And wanted to um, advance uh, sort of Orthodox Christianity across the you know across Western Europe. Um, again, while that didn't last, uh, there are two things about Justinian we can mention that were much more uh, long-lasting and and very very important. The first is the uh, the Code of Justinian. And here is um, here is uh, you know one of the great sort of legal accomplishments of the the, the first millennium AD. You know, no no doubt about that. We think I think we, we recognize the contribution of Roman law, you know the the law of the Roman Empire, rightly so. Um, but moving forward a few centuries. Certainly, uh, the code of Justinian as a legal collection and, and was uh, going to contribute in, in a number of ways to the development of our kind of modern Western legal tradition. Basically, it's, it's hard to imagine this maybe, or maybe not, but like all the various Roman emperors over time would issue you know we mentioned some of them in in relationship to like the persecution and stuff or in the aftermath like emperor so-and-so would issue an edict exempting clergy from taxation okay so somebody wrote that down somewhere then the next emperor so-and-so issued an edict um you know prohibiting pagan sacrifices okay somebody wrote that down somewhere but they weren't compiled and systematized or whatever into you know, a nice, searchable website. Like, they didn't have that yet. And so there was this whole kind of scattered um, body of imperial law that was not systematized. And Justinian thought this was a major problem, and he also thought it would be a tremendous, um, you know, a, a really important task to go about gathering, kind of collecting all the law and organizing it you know for future for future editions but also so that there's a kind of systematic body of law that can be recognized as governing the roman empire and this this whole task of codifying and organizing existing law um takes shape in what's known as the code of justinian which first appeared in 529 there were there was a revised edition in uh 534. the total um here uh for the justinian code was 12 books and 4652 don't ask me why it, i have that in my notes it's very specific but for 4600 laws that were compiled stretching back um several centuries in 12 books so this is where by now in the fifth I'm sorry, in the sixth century in the 500s, we already have the sort of joining together of Christianity and what we would tend to think of as civil society or, or secular society. There was really no gap between the two. And that was reflected in the code of Justinian. So what do I mean? So I say that there are 12 books, you know uh, in in the code. The first book, the beginning of the first book, the, the the whole the way the whole thing starts out. If you were thinking about it, you might say, well, if I were Justinian, I would probably start, and I'm the emperor, right? I'd probably start with all of the laws that say how how critical how important the emperor is to establish my own authority. Like that would seem to be um, the most important thing. Like I don't think it's a coincidence, right? That you know, if you think about the constitution in our context. Or at least the Bill of Rights. Like so much of it was about locating the authority with you know among the people. Like that was the key takeaway, right? And so that's what you focus on when you're when you're setting it out. So you might think that Justinian would want to affirm you know his own power. Instead, Book One of the Code of Justinian was on the Trinity. It was a series of essentially laws that that took. That were that were um, you know from the the various general councils. Um, the next uh, twelve chapters of the Justinian Code all dealt with the church, with theological matters, with the administration of the church, and so on. And so he priority. I mean, in his mind, this was you know where you start, and then you move into sort of the political realm. But the point is, you know, it would it would we would be totally shocked you know if if somebody proposed that like our we have a compo- a, a composite sort of american legal code um and the, you know the first the first section were quotes from the catechism you know like we wouldn't ha- have any sense of why that would be um, but in this age the the union if you will the the over, the complete overlapping of of religious considerations and civil considerations was such that it made sense for the justinian code to start out with a discussion of religious matters um you know it's hard to overstate well maybe it's not hard but it, it, it's it's important to note that the justinian code after justinian dies you know it kind of peters along but it will be rediscovered in in the middle later in the Middle Ages, at the University of Bologna, which is the sort of the, the medieval university that's uh, tasked with sort of legal development, and and it's not a stretch to say that you know the Justinian Code influenced Bologna the University of Bologna, which really influenced development of both canon law and sort of the modern Western legal tradition. And so Justinian, you know, it, it's not a stretch to get back to um, the Code of Justinian for even the influence on our, our legal system today. The last thing, since we're just about out of time, is Hagia Sophia, or the Church of Holy Wisdom, uh, Santa Sophia, if you will, in uh, in Constantinople, right? In Istanbul. He um, wanted to have uh, a great sort of visible achievement in, in Constantinople, uh, it's shocking. I, I mean, I don't know, again, we're just about at the time, so I'm not going to pull a picture, but you know, you can look it up. I mean, it's this massive, massive building, you know, it was a church and then it was a mosque and then it was a church and a mosque and a mosque and a mosque. And, and now it's a museum basically. Um, and people that have gone there, I've not been, but people who have say it's absolutely unbelievable how magnificent it is. It was built in five years which is almost incomprehensible um you know i, I mean I, I hate to say use this counterexample because of uh you know the, the fire recently um at, at notre dame but you know notre dame in the west is like this great achievement of uh religious architecture it took 200 years for them to build it and uh, Hagia sophia was built in five years when it opened Justinian then in, in the year 517 justinian was reported to have said solomon i have surpassed you in reference That's to that. a structure greater than Solomon's temple um and obviously you know even though it's no longer christian church it you know it it, may, it remains an incredibly significant uh structure and it was a, really a reflection of his vision his leadership and his ambition any question? um so today's the 22nd so we have we do meet next week right um the following week is easter monday and so we don't meet but we do uh we do meet next week and so um i will look forward to talking to you next monday thanks very much everyone bye-bye go ahead ron hello I'm looking at a picture of the Hagia Sophia. Uh-huh. Um, were the minions added later or are those part of the original structure?